It's great to be with you guys tonight. And just, I'm so thankful for the gift of worship and just hearing you guys sing. It just clarifies everything for me to sing with you. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. I don't know maybe what things came in with you tonight, what things are on your heart, maybe different anxieties, temptations, frustrations, just weariness, and that, that all want to kind of move your attention off of Christ. And I'm just so thankful that this can be our focus, that we can talk about this battle for our minds and help one another fix our eyes on Christ. So that's, that's what we're going to be continuing to do tonight is kind of the second part in the battle for the mind, considering how spiritual disciplines of like scripture and prayer allow us to set our minds on Christ. So last week we took a kind of careful look at idolatry and considered the, the subtle moment by moment deception that turns our attention away from Christ and onto just looking for life in all the wrong places, looking for life in the gifts that God gives apart from him. And then we kind of saw the rescuing kindness of the gospel that Christ turns our hearts back to him by seeing that all of these gifts that surround us in this life are actually from him to be used to worship him and to make much of him. So tonight we're gonna consider how we can proactively fight this battle in our minds by drawing near to Christ personally through the study of scripture and through prayer. Um, so to start us off, I wanted to share another story from my childhood. So growing up in the South, I grew up in Alabama <clears throat> and I heard the phrase personal relationship with God all the time. It was like everywhere I went. Most Sundays I'd hear it as an altar call question. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior? In Sunday school, we were asked, like, are you growing in your personal relationship with Jesus? So the word personal just seemed to kind of velcroed and attached to Jesus's name. Everyone talked about Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior. I heard politicians even talk about it, but just something felt off because everyone, used, everyone who used the word personal spoke about Jesus in kind of impersonal, broad, generic ways. I heard people say things like, I talk to Jesus every day. I tell him good morning when I wake up and good night when I go to bed. He's my best friend. He lives inside my heart. And in some sense, I felt like everyone had the same imaginary friend and they could only talk about him in very general, repetitious ways. So when I was young, as a kid growing up in this, I really did believe that I was a sinner. I trusted that Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the grave, promising new life in him. And I thought believing those truths would make him personal, but it didn't. I wanted this relationship. I wanted a personal relationship with Jesus. I wanted to walk with him and talk with him and understand what people were saying about him living in their hearts. But there was this gap between the, the personal relationship I professed and the impersonal relationship I daily lived with. I felt that every time I tried to pray, every time I read my Bible, I don't know if you've ever felt that gap. I really felt that gap growing up. I was desperate to fix it, mainly as a kid, because I knew that if I didn't have this relationship with God, that I was facing an eternity in hell. I mean, one of the things I would hear preachers say is, uh, even as a kid, like five, six years old, I would hear preachers say, if you are 99% sure you're going to heaven, then you're 100% sure going to hell. And so as a kid, like I wasn't 99% sure about anything. I wasn't 100% sure about anything. So from the time I was five or six years old until I was 14, I prayed for salvation, right? For Jesus to come into my heart and save me almost every single day. 
essentially for eight or nine years, I was just going up the driveway, up and down the driveway of the Christian life and not ever actually getting out onto the road of having a relationship with God. I told others about the struggle because I really wanted this personal relationship with him. I, this anxiety couldn't just stay within my like little kid heart. I remember my Sunday school teacher in an effort to help gave me two remembrance rocks, one to put under my pillow so I would hit my head on it when I went to sleep uh, and remember to say my evening prayer and one to step on when I woke up in the morning. Um, So I remember to say my morning prayer. But no matter what I tried, I was stuck in this very impersonal place with God, with Jesus. And it just felt like this terrible game that didn't make any sense to me and I was really bad at. It was supposed to be this relationship of peace and rest. But for me, it was a relationship of anxiety. When I was 14, I went to a Christian music camp. And one day at lunch, a junior high girl that was sitting at our table uh, asked if she could pray for the meal. And that was really unusual for anyone to do. We were just, all just pray on our own and just trust everybody's just quietly praying. But she asked if she could pray. And the way she talked to God was just so different. It felt so different than I had just experienced up to that point. She talked to God like he was right next to her, that he really knew her, that she knew him. He was interesting to her. And it was just, it was the personal relationship that seemed so personal that I was wanting to see. It was a simple prayer, but it opened my eyes to see that my view up of God up to this point had been detached and impersonal because I was blind to the real purpose of the gospel, the real purpose of my salvation. I really learned in that moment that this is why God saved me. God saved me not mainly so I would escape hell. He saved me to know and enjoy him. And the way he just draws me in close to him day after day is not by having me hit my head on a rock or something. He gives me his word. He gives me prayer. He gives me a gift of a relationship with him. And as I started to know and enjoy God, my life started to change. I started to grow. I became less fearful. I started to enjoy rest as I just talked to him, enjoyed him. So today we're gonna be talking about the grace of scripture and prayer to help set our minds on Christ so we can win the battle by his grace for our minds. But I wanted to start by sharing my testimony because I believe the biggest hurdle to abiding in Christ and growing in Christ is that our relationship, our personal relationship with God can often feel pretty impersonal at times. I think this is why we often feel like imposters when we're trying to share the gospel with other people. We feel helpless in making disciples or in counseling other people. Often I think this is why we feel stuck in certain sins and why change isn't happening in our lives. It's because we don't know well enough the Christ we profess and we become comfortable with this gap. But we all just have to kind of live with this gap that exists between our confession of faith and our relationship of faith. This is how we must evaluate our time in the word of God and in prayer. We need to ask how personal is our relationship with God? How personal is it? Knowing our God well is how he wants to grow us and transform us. In counseling, so I'm the counseling pastor here at Lighthouse. In counseling, a common question I hear is, why is it taking so long for me to change? Like Pastor Tim, like why is this taking so long? So tonight I want to explain as clear as I can that change not only happens exclusively inside our relationship with God, it happens at the speed of that relationship, right? God will not let you look like him without getting to know him. 
right? You can't ever put any relationship on fast forward. It is through slowly building a relationship over time. The matrix that God has set up for us to know him and get to know him is scripture and prayer. They are like the bread and butter of knowing God. And the main effect of deepening that relationship with him is worship and transformation. David Mathis in his book, Habits of Grace, describes it like this. Scripture and prayer are like a faucet and a light switch. You and I can flip on a switch, but we don't provide the electricity. We can turn on a faucet, but we don't make the water flow. There will be no light and no water without someone on the other end providing it. That's how we interact with the grace of God. His grace is essential for our lives, we don't but we don't control the supply. We can't make the grace of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open. So scripture and prayer are those circuits and pipes through which he has promised to pour out grace into our lives through a relationship with him. So there's a lot of passages I think we could look at tonight to help us understand this, but I thought John 15 might really be a place to help us see scripture and prayer as this transforming grace that we just draw from the vine as we abide in our relationship with God. So we're gonna be looking carefully at John 15, especially verses seven and eight, but just for context, I'm gonna read this whole section of John 15 verses one through eight. We'll be focusing mainly on verses seven and eight. Listen as I read John 15, one through eight. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So as we enter this passage, I, it's important to know where we are in the life of our Lord as he's saying these words. It's Thursday night in the upper room and Christ is celebrating Passover with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. So Judas has already left the room to go and betray him, right? Judas is that branch that doesn't stay, that doesn't abide in the vine, that falls to the ground and withers. That's Judas. So he's speaking to his other 11 branches, right? His other 11 disciples, not because he's afraid they're gonna fall off the tree like Judas did, but because he wants them to see what Judas couldn't see, right? the reason for abiding, the reason to abide in Christ. The word abide is the Greek word, is a common Greek word, meno, which means to remain or to stay. And I think there's a lot of analogies that Jesus could have pulled from, right? The, that describe the Christian life, the night before he's gonna be crucified to his disciples, right? He could have described it like fighting a war or running a race, but he chose the picture of a branch sticking to the side of a tree. And at first we hear the word abide, right? It doesn't sound heroic, and nearly as heroic as like running a race or fighting a war. Branches aren't heroic, they don't make big splashes. People don't usually write books about branches. In fact, abide as a command sounds pretty relaxed, passive, but it's actually an incredibly powerful command 
Because in verse 10, he compares our abiding in him to his abiding in his father. And it says, abide in me the way I abided in my father. So if you look at Jesus's relationship with his father throughout the gospels, it's a relationship full of hope. It's his fuel. It's Christ's compass, his comfort. It's filled with love and communion and a single-minded passion for the mission of the glory of God. He's saying, abide in me like that. I think another way to picture this idea of abiding is a marriage. I think this is one of my favorite ways to think about the picture of abiding. When a couple joins together in marriage, they're called to abide together to keep their covenant. But that's not passive. It's very active. It requires a lot of effort and love and forgiveness and grace and patience and trust. It requires dying to self constantly. So when Christ calls us to be his disciples and abide and gives them this picture of a a branch and a vine, he's calling them to take up the work and put in the effort of knowing and enjoying him, of being united to him. And the result is growth and fruit. So the passage lays before us the necessity of abiding for a branch to grow. As God dwells within us and we dwell within him, his grace flows through us, leaves sprout, blossoms open, and fruit grows to bless others. So brothers, as we stay close to Christ, as we grow, as we are transformed, we not only win the battle for our mind by the grace of God, we help others worship him and fight the battle for their minds. It is all because of God's word by his spirit, intimately flowing in and through us. Practically, what this means is we show up to our quiet times or small group or iron sharpens iron or Sunday mornings to hear the word. We're not meant to come before scripture as spectators, right? Like we've arrived in a theater or a stadium. We must look at scripture like someone hemorrhaging from a car crash looks at a pint of blood right? I need this in me or I will die. This relationship we have with Christ is not a kind of a comfort blanket that we kind of occasionally pull over ourselves when we feel a little overwhelmed. It is our oxygen that if we don't have it, we will die. So to help us practically understand the desperate picture of abiding in Christ, we're going to look at three ways abiding in Christ prepares us for battle. Three ways abiding in Christ prepares us for battle. First, his word reveals our hearts. His word reveals our hearts. Verse seven begins with, if you abide in me. And that word if, right at the beginning, if you abide in me, shows that there is competition for our abiding, for our attention, for our minds. So when we bring our minds before God's word, the Holy Spirit starts by helping us see the enemies that are on this battlefield, the, the enemies to abiding in him. And he does that through searching our hearts and exposing what we abide in instead of Christ. And this is kind of the passage that um, Pastor, I mean, that, that Brian read earlier. Like Psalm 139 says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Like when is the last time you said those words after a quiet time? Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Like as, as you meditate on scripture, you must experience his words, his word asking tough questions of your heart that make you uncomfortable, that make you reevaluate things in your life. So in the mornings at 6 a.m. when you're in your comfy chair and you've got your hot cup of coffee and you're preparing for your quiet time, remember you are a sick patient there to see your doctor. When you come to God's word, you are looking for the spirit to make you uncomfortable as he runs tests on your heart. 
For example, let's say you're meditating on the verse, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart from Matthew 22, 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. As you think about that verse, what are some of the questions that the spirit can bring to your mind? Like questions like, what do I love? Why do I love the approval of man so much? Why do I fixate on the appreciation of particular people? Why am I so willing to compromise my convictions to be accepted by that particular friend? Then stop and say, oh Lord, you have searched me. Right? That is what God does for the believer. We, his word searches us out. It comes into our lives and it doesn't just let us keep these dark rooms closed. It, it kicks them down and brings the light of truth to expose our dark hearts. So I can see where I'm failing to embrace him, to know him, to enjoy him, to bring my heart to him. Because once I know where my faith in God is weak or non-existent, that's where I'll find the roots of all of my sin. That's where I'll find the kind of the holes where I try to turn to idols. So if you're hopeless, because it seems like you can't talk to your wife or to a close friend without fighting, Scripture can reveal so much more to you than say you're sorry and don't get angry, right? Scripture reveals your hearts. So let's say you're, you're studying Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the spirit works to help you ask, well, what do I love? Do I love the Lord with all my heart? No, last night I loved being right with all my heart. I loved getting my point across with all my heart, even if it hurt my wife or my friend. Oh, Father, you have searched me and known me. So as scripture searches us out, we start to see the lies we've believed and it reveals where our hearts have been abiding. It reveals what we abide in, that, that when we abide in hopeless thoughts about our marriages, we renounce God's wisdom and sovereignty in giving us our wives. It reveals that by looking to our wives as our source of rest, we've forgotten that God will put us through trials until we find all of our comfort in him alone. God's word doesn't just search out my heart. It shows me how impoverished my faith in him is, how small my view of him is. And as that starts to happen, as scripture starts to scratch away at our hard hearts to reveal unbelief, we start to see where we are sick spiritually and how we need to grow in trusting and worshiping God. So first his word reveals our hearts. The second way abiding in Christ brings, uh, brings us to uh, set our mind on Christ is his word reveals Christ's heart. His word reveals Christ's heart. The next phrase in verse seven is, and my words abide in you, and my words abide in you. Now, what does he mean by the phrase, my words abide in you? Is he talking about scripture memory? Well, not mainly. Right? Even though scripture memory is wonderful, um, but he says, my words, when he says my words, he's talking about himself, right? Just look at verse four. He says, abide in me and I in you. And then in verse five, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So when he says in verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, he's not trying to describe something new. He's repeating himself for a third time in this passage. And this time he's getting more specific in how he abides. It's not just generally he lives in our hearts in a kind of vague way. He abides with words. It is a relationship of words. 
Words that you don't just listen to, words that you live in, cling to, that you never turn away from because they are the clearest picture of Christ's heart that you have. So we started by praying, oh Lord, search me and know me. Now we're praying as we're looking at our Bibles, show me Christ, show me the heart of Christ. I need to see my heart and all the ways I wanna run from you and rebel. And I need to see Christ's heart. We must open up our Bible for the same reason that Zacchaeus climbed into a sycamore tree, for the same reason that blind Bartimaeus placed himself on the roadside and cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when they told him to shut up, he cried out even louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We must open our Bibles because we want to see Christ. How do you place yourself before scripture? Are you a spectator wanting to be entertained, a scholar doing research, or are you a, a blind man begging for sight, begging to see Christ, desperate for grace? Reading the, the Bible and praying might seem unimpressive, like a light switch or a bathroom faucet or a, a branch, but if you turn in them on, what flows in is a relationship so great, it will change you. Transformation is wonderful, it is marvelous, it's a beautiful experience, but it is a side effect of knowing and enjoying Christ. So how can you see him tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. when you have your quiet time? To see Christ, you must understand one thing about the Bible. Scripture is the gospel. Tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., you're not just opening a Bible, you're opening the gospel. So scripture transforms us, not just because it has the gospel message tucked into it, but because it is the complete story of the gospel. It is the story of the glory of Christ in our redemption. The story of the Bible is the story of the gospel. So if I share the gospel with someone, I've just given them the, the quickest version of the Bible that I have. And if I read the whole Bible with you, which would take a long time, but we've just seen the longest version of the gospel that we can possibly see. The message of the gospel, the message of scripture are one message that God has given us for salvation and change. He can transform us through the word because it does what the gospel does. It directs our hearts to see and adore Christ. Just like when you first trusted Christ in salvation. Like how did that happen? The Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see the wonders of the gospel, to see the love of God, to see the heart of Christ. And you were changed, you were transformed. And that doesn't just happen at our moment of conversion. It happens every time we come before the gospel. We see Christ, we behold him, and we are struck by the wonders of his love in the gospel. He does the same thing. He wants to do the same thing with you tomorrow morning when you open up the word to see Christ, to draw your mind onto him that is darkened by the deceitfulness of sin, your mind that is crowded with idols, and to show you once again, Christ crucified for you. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.24 says that Christ crucified is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, that is Christians, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So if I want the power and wisdom of God every day flowing into my life, then I need to see Christ. The issue for Christians as we read our Bibles is not whether we're gonna be theologians, but whether we're gonna be good theologians or bad ones. 
And that has everything to do with how we seek Christ as we read our Bibles. I, I've, you know, I went to a Christian college and then I went to seminary and I was in seminary for a really long time. And I've had professors, disciplers, friends in all those institutions that they could do handle scripture with the theological dexterity of a gymnast. I mean, just so sharp, so much smarter than me, so brilliant, but they left the faith or they left their wives. They abandoned their families. They turned their backs on Christ. Why? Because they weren't transformed by scripture. They weren't opening up the word of God to see and know Christ. And it's because knowing Christ was not the aim of their theology. He was not the focus of their meditation in scripture. He was not the object of their worship. You know, it is very easy to look and sound transformed when it's expected of us. Right? A dad who's yelling at his kids can stop on a dime when the phone rings. Like a student looking at pornography can stop in a moment if his friend walks in the room. We can come to church and have a John Piper quote for every occasion. Right? I have one in a couple minutes. Some people think that if a preacher can really preach, then he must be godly. Not true. Not true. And it scares me that we are often so passionate about looking and sounding transformed to fit in that we neglect the power of God and the wisdom of God to actually be transformed through knowing Christ, who is our only hope. Brothers, we're not okay. There is a battle for our minds and we need Christ to transform us. But the path toward growth and change is not through pleading with God to zap us with holiness so that we no longer sin. It's the path toward change is not by making lists and resolutions to never sin again, or through reading self-help books so that we know anger management principles. You can't manage your sin away. It will not go away with a hundred mission trips or after you give a million dollars to missions you have to park yourself in front of God's word and adore Christ. That is where the whole battle for your mind will be won and lost. That is what it means for his word to abide in you. Perhaps you're here and you feel like you can't change. You can't even enter this battle because you've not experienced salvation through the gracious love of Christ. Maybe you've never cried out in faith for forgiveness, experienced reconciliation with God through the gospel. And I invite you, wait no longer. Call on him while he is near. Do not delay. But maybe you think, all right, Pastor Tim, that's your answer. Read my Bible. I've tried that. Well, remember, anyone can read a Bible. Unbelievers teach classes on how to read the Bible. I'm asking you to eat from the banquet of blessing that Christ purchased for you on the cross to know him. If you're not sure where to begin, I would say just open your Bible tomorrow morning at a set time in a set place and read. And as you read, pray, Lord, search me, reveal my heart and show me Christ. A third way abiding in Christ prepares us for this battle is through prayer. His word ignites prayer in our hearts. The result of having your heart searched and transformed as you're focused on Christ is that you want to talk to him. Like you want to talk to this God. The third phrase in verse seven is, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, the result of abiding in Christ and having his word abide in you is that you want to talk with him 
about your greatest desires, your deepest fears, and those longings will be all about having more of him and not wanting anything to get in the way of losing him. Like, think about it. If I'm pursued by God, drawn by God, filled with God's word until I delight in him, then what am I going to ask for? Hey, like, what is all a branch really wants? It wants to be so firmly attached to the vine and so filled with the life of the vine that it can bear fruit no matter what, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter the heat, no matter the storms. When the life of God's word dwells in us, we are just going to be asking for more of that life, more of him so that we can bear fruit and allow his life to come through us and bless others. John Piper writes this, it's not wrong to want God's gifts and ask for them. Most prayers in the Bible are for the gifts of God, but ultimately every gift should be desired because it shows us and brings us more of him. When this world totally fails, the ground for joy remains. Therefore, surely every prayer for life and health and home and family and job and ministry in this life, in this world is secondary. Is secondary. And the great purpose of prayer is to ask that in and through all his gifts, God would be our joy. Now, as we look at this passage, I think it's important here that prayer is placed after Christ's words abide in us. Like this is the pattern throughout scripture that the word precedes prayer. One place you find it is Psalm 1, right? The Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. But I think it's appropriate that the first Psalm in the, the collection of Psalms in the book of Psalms is not a prayer, but a poem about the importance of scripture. And this is the pattern we see in life as well, right? We only learn how to speak language after we hear it and read it from others. At birth, we are kind of dropped into the sea of language, right? And very slowly, we learn the capacity to say words like mama and daddy and bottle and blanket. All our speech, every word that comes out of our mouths is drawn from this well of words that we have heard our entire lives. We're all spoken to before we speak. So that means our prayers should arise out of immersion in the word of God. So when I read my Bible, I'm learning how to pray. Um, Tim Keller said this, we should plunge ourselves into the sea of God's language, the Bible. We should listen, study, think, reflect, and ponder until there is an answering response in our hearts and minds. Right? When our prayers lack the nourishment of scripture, they, they run on empty. Right? And the only answer is to refuel them with the word. I mean, have you ever tried to talk about someone that you haven't talked to in a long time, right? You, you remember them, you kind of know them, but it's been so long since you've talked with them, it's hard to fully describe them or sh talk about them with someone. That can begin to happen in our relationship with God. We want to talk about God. We want to talk about Christ, but it's been so long since we've been immersed in scripture. It's hard to pray. It's hard to evangelize. It's hard to have an answering response. Letting scripture fuel your prayer will help you pray better. And I want you just to look at a few ways that scripture can help us pray. First, scripture shows us how to talk about sin in confession. So after you sin, what do you do? I think pretty often we mentally punish ourselves. Like that's the first thing we do. We like take out the, the whip of harsh words, right? 
when we rehearse condemnations, accusations. And if you read confessions in scripture, maybe like Psalms of confession, like Psalm 51, you recognize there is words about the seriousness of sin, but there's also words about the promises of grace and the riches of God's love. Confessing our sin acknowledges the seriousness of sin, but it should do more than that. It should also rehearse God's mercy, bring us to the cross. It lifts our heads to remember the cross and the empty tomb. I think sometimes we talk to ourselves the way Satan would accuse us, right? Just listing our wrongs, insulting, rehearsing shame. And all of that is deceptive because Satan lies, right? You think he's telling the truth about your sin, but he's using your thoughts about your sin to blind you to Christ and the cross. It's deceptive. You know, Satan and the Holy Spirit can point out the same wrongs in our lives. Did you know that? They can point to the same wrong, but one is a deceiver and an accuser and the other is a comforter and a helper. The Holy Spirit helps us see our sin, but lifts our heads, comforts us, reminds us of mercy, stays with us, shows us Christ so we can be transformed. Satan points out a wrong only to accuse, deceive, and condemn. Knowing this not only helps us have helpful helpful conversations with God about our sin, but I think it also equips us to know how to talk with others about their sin, right? So that we sound more like the Holy Spirit than Satan when we talk to our wives or our friends or our kids about their sin. Second, scripture shows us how to ask God for help. As we ask according to what we know in scripture, Pastor Timothy Keller again says, God will either give us what we ask for or he'll give us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knows. I just love that. God will either give us what we ask for or he'll give us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knows, right? Scripture gives us a clear vision of our God who hears our prayers and who helps us so that we can say, your will be done from the bottom of our hearts until we can hope in God enough to say those words and mean them when we pray, we will never know any peace. We will feel compelled to try to control people in our lives, our environment, and make things the way we believe they ought to be. Our will be done. But if you are abiding in the vine, you will hope in the vine's perfect care for all of your requests and rest in that. Scripture shows us how to ask God for help. Third, scripture shows us how to lament with God over suffering, right? I know some of you guys feel like you've got two emotions, like hungry and tired, but trust me, you have more emotions than that, right? And God designed you with emotions and everything you feel is meant to send you sprinting toward God with statements like, thank you and you're awesome. And why God and how long, oh Lord? He wants you to pour out your whole heart before him. And as you do that, when life hurts, you're going to remember his heart in the midst of his suffering. We see that Christ did not only face the most intense suffering in this life and persevere victoriously over everything, but he's sovereign over our suffering and he's with us every step of the way as we go through it. So we can bring our hearts to God, knowing he hears, knowing he cares, knowing he hates the shadows of death and death itself, calling it the final enemy. He wants us to fellowship with him over our suffering, even if it's just groaning with him, groaning to him in pain over what we're facing. Fourth, scripture shows us how to adore and rejoice in God. 
Prayer is audible faith. You hear what you think about God. You hear your theology. You hear the the depth of, of your relationship when you pray, what you believe about him, what you treasure. If I don't know God well from his word, then I won't know how to adore him or why he's worthy of my praise. So I think all of us who are here, we would say we're not where we want to be when it comes to scripture and prayer. And I'm not doing this so you feel like some kind of godly guilt trip. I'm, I'm wanting you to see, um, to, to just take a moment and consider your relationship with God and how personal it is. Maybe you can listen to your prayers and hear a pretty impersonal view of God. God's shallow, foggy, impersonal, far away, Remember that you will learn to talk to God in prayer just as a child learns to talk to their parents by listening and learning words. Just be sure it is his voice that you're imitating. It's his voice that allows you to see him, adore him, and to know how to talk to him, that you're abiding in his words. I'd say if you want more help with this, I know that I'm putting a lot into this one sermon. I recommend re-listening to the four sermon series on meditation from the beginning of this year back in January. But... The result of abiding in Christ and letting his word abide in you and enjoying that relationship through prayer is that you will bear fruit. You will be transformed. He calls that fruit the proof of discipleship. It is the only proof of discipleship. There is no other way for a branch to tell you that it's healthy other than for good things to grow on it. Matthew 7 and James 1 call that fruit being a doer of the word. Right? There are people that may never read a Bible. They may not be reading a Bible, but they're around you and they'll read your life. So what does it say about Christ and the gospel? This isn't just true for each of us individually. It's true for all of us together as men here at Lighthouse. The more the men of Lighthouse are tapped into God's word, the more transforming power will be present by the Holy Spirit in our church and in our homes. But the more we get away from the centrality of a personal relationship with Christ and the gospel in our hearts and minds, the more our church will be running on fumes and will be a people conforming to a pattern of religion rather than transformed into passionate imitators of Christ who worship and love him. The picture, that picture of discipleship and transformation is what we long for here and pray for. We dream about here at Lighthouse, but it ultimately comes down to how each branch at Lighthouse abides. How are you abiding and knowing and enjoying your glorious Lord? Let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you for this time. I just thank you for the relationship that you've purchased for us to enjoy with Christ. Lord, I I pray for each of our hearts, Lord, that you would allow us to, to fix our eyes on Christ, to set aside space to have your loving scalpel, scalpel do the wounding work, the careful work of showing us our hearts, but then binding us up by showing us Christ, showing us mercy, showing us grace, and drawing us deeper into a relationship with you. I pray you bless the conversations as we talk about how we can draw nearer to you as brothers in Christ. I pray that we would be showing Christ to one another, even in these conversations, that there would be grace, encouragement, love, and just help to know how to run this race together toward you so that as leaders in this church, we would be helping one another 
and our families and friends all set our minds on you, the author and finisher of our faith. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.